let me introduce our guests for tonight. So, Chris White from Carlisle Peninsula, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in the United States. He's a retired American military <laughs> intelligence officer for the army and foreign area officer for sub-Saharan Africa. He was director of African studies at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He has previously senior military advisor to US mission to the African Union. And he's done tours across Europe, Germany, Italy, the Balkans, the Levant, Southwest Asia. And he served in Africa in eight countries, including Tunisia, Liberia, where he rebuilt the army, Botswana, Malawi, Niger, and Mauritania, Uganda, and Ethiopia. His tours in Africa included his duty as senior defense representative and security assistance officer and attache assignments. So we've just done an interview before the program now on From the Frontline, which will be broadcasting next week, Tuesday. And should also be aware that next Monday in Sumsquest there's going to be a panel discussion, uh, which you'll take part in in Sumsquest, and there'll be more details available about the two. Chris, welcome to Cape Town. Welcome to Cape of Good Hope. All over to you. Well, first off, I, I want to express my profound, and you know, people say that word very lightly and they take it very easily, but my profound gratitude for Dr. Hammond, number one, for being a guest on my program several times and for making my Christmas program wonderful this past year. He was fantastic, as always. Um, I had a few people that didn't show up for my Christmas program. Um, that's fine. I don't pay my guests, so I can't, they can't always be there. But uh, Dr. Hammond came to the rescue on short notice and, uh, as always, was a great voice to talk about Christmas. Um, you know, um, I've, I've talked uh, to some people about my faith. Um, as I'm not a churchgoer as such, but I have a personal faith and I have a, have a relationship with the deity, and, and that's my thing. Uh, I have nothing against organized religion in churches. It's just, uh, for me, the only time I've tended to do that since my childhood is in uniform with the military. When we have services, uh, a maneuver or deployments, I would go, and it just kind of became sort of thing I did to be with my soldiers and troops. But um, it's it's interesting for me that uh, to be here with, uh, I believe, people of faith who are here tonight, so so I appreciate you being here. So hopefully I can uh, give a presentation that will interest you. Um, what I ask is this, if you have a question at any time, just ask it, okay? Um, that works best. <clears throat> I can also gauge whether you're still interested or not, so that helps me out. Uh, whether I should just wrap it up because people are tired of listening to me talk. So the topic uh, we agreed on was, uh, it's a long one, right moral and just in the face of tyranny and justice and so on. And I thought what I'd do is give you a few anecdote examples and just kind of talk in a big picture briefly about where I think we are in the world today. Uh, I'm actually very, uh, South Africans like to say the phrase heart sore, or the word heart sore. I think I'm heart sore about where the world is today. The Anglo-Saxon world in particular, and I include South African Anglo-Saxon world, even though it's, 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 it's a mix of the Anglo-Saxon world and, and Germanic world and African world, but New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the United States, United Kingdom, They've lost their minds, absolutely lost their minds. I spent 36 and a half years in uniform as a private, a sergeant, and of course, lieutenant captain and so on. So I was a full colonel in the U.S. Army. And as you heard, I've served a number of places around the world, much of my service overseas. Of the 36 years, 23 were spent overseas. And so I've been away from America quite a bit in my life, uh, defending freedom and protecting others and hunting terrorists and building schools and clinics and running HIV programs and so on and so forth. But when we take an oath in the United States, unlike Nazi Germany, we don't take a, an oath to the leader. Unlike many countries around the world, we don't take an oath to our president or prime minister. We take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. 
Our founding fathers created what I think is one of the most brilliant documents in the history of mankind. Yes, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm biased, okay? All right, you hear my bias up front. I think it's one of the most beautiful documents ever. Uh, it, with nothing else, you'll find that I'm transparent. You can't see, you can see through me. It just means that I'm honest about things. Uh, earlier we were talking about something and I, and I corrected the records. I don't want people, I don't believe in false honor. So I want to make sure people understand where I'm really coming from. But I think it's one of those beautiful documents. The Constitution isn't for black, it isn't for white, it isn't for Native American, it isn't for Hispanic. It's for Americans, American citizens and green card holders. That's like, that's people allowed in the country. Those rights apply. And what that document does is it's things that the government is set up to do. And then we have the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, the first changes to the Constitution, which came shortly after it was adopted. And the Bill of Rights says what the government cannot do to you. So, for instance, when YouTube or Twitter censors me, I'm pointing to my camera over here because I'm live. Uh, when YouTube or Twitter censors me, technically, they can do that. They're a private corporation. They can write the rules. Unfortunately, I believe they're violating current law, but that's a separate story. But the government can't do that. Now, if you say something dangerous or criminal, I mean, for, if I go into the theater and go, like right now, fire, and everybody panics and somebody gets injured, that's a crime. All right, we have laws against things like that. You can't incite violence or cause harm or danger by doing that sort of thing. So by the same token, you can't promote criminal activity, you can't commit crimes when you're using speech. So welcome. So you, you can't do that. But the government can stop that speech because it's harmful. But if you have an opinion, if I think Jack is a really good looking guy, I can say that, that's my opinion. The government can't stop me from saying that. Uh, you know, it's, the point about that is that our 10 amendments are inalienable or unalienable, depending which word you prefer to use, both have been used in our history, inalienable rights that the government didn't give to us. They're God-given. They're God-given. Those are natural rights. And if you look back at the philosophy and history to talk about natural rights, this is what they're talking about. The freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the right to seek redress from our government, like on January 6th. <laughs> Contrary to the narrative that's out there right now. We can talk about that if you want, because I was present. That's right, I was there. Six hours I was there. Anyway, uh, and I have evidence to refute the narrative that's being told around the world right now. Video evidence and photographic evidence. Anyway, the point of the story is that those are rights the government can't take away. So our founders had the foresight to realize that we must enshrine these in our basic document, the basis of all our law, saying that the government can't take these rights away from you. And I think that was a morally sound thing to do. Think about it. When we became a country in the 18th century, Declared independence on the 4th of July, 1776, England had a state religion, the Anglican Church, yes? And as a consequence, they have big schisms between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church and persecuting Catholics in the United Kingdom. But in America, we said that you, can, you have freedom of religion. You can practice your faith. Unfortunately, that's been contorted in America in the 20th and 21st century to what leftists, extreme leftists, have termed separation of church and state. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist in our document. Read the First Amendment. I encourage you, it's very simple, it's a couple of sentences. And it says the government shall not establish the state religion, official religion, or prevent the free exercise thereof. That's not separation of state and church. Yet demonically, for the past four decades, leftist groups in America have filed lawsuits against cities and against counties and against states when people want to put a creche for Christmas out there, a nativity scene. In my view, according to the Constitution, if you're a Muslim and you want to celebrate your Muslim holidays in a public space, 
as long as you ask for a permit so it doesn't interfere with something. If you're a Christian, you want to put a Christmas manger scene out there so long as it doesn't interfere with something or cause a public health hazard. And if you're a Jew or a Buddhist and you want to do something in public space, it's our space in the public. And it's your right to do it, and the government has no right to stop it. Unfortunately, that's been contorted, and every time you turn around, oh, separation of church and state. But the funny thing is, if you look at the back of our dollar bill, I'm sure most of you have seen it, it says, in God we trust. Now, I'm not trying to push faith on anybody. I'm the last person to push faith on anybody. It's a very personal thing. My point here is that we have evil forces on the political left who are seeking to change the world and the world order. And this is an example of it. It's very simple and straightforward. It's like the Second Amendment in America. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed upon. <laughs> Try to own a firearm in New Jersey. You wind up becoming a convicted felon for a very simple violation of a law that's unconstitutional. So the point there is that those rights are to protect us. So I just want to frame that to start out with, that's what I support and defend in uniform. People's right to keep and bear arms. People's, Muslims' right to worship in America. You know we have more mosques in America than any country in the world? Did you know that? Yeah, we have more mosques in any country in the world to my knowledge. But I, I might be wrong. Indonesia might have more mosques. I could be wrong about that. But we, we have the, among the largest number of mosques in America. Uh, most people don't know that. We also, I think, have more Jews in America than any other country in the world. We have nine million Jews in America. It's the largest Jewish population in the world. Uh, and we don't have the largest Christian population. I think we have a pretty big, we might. We have a pretty big Christian population. The point is that when we take the oath, it's not for Bush. It's not for Trump. It's not for Obama. It's not for Biden. These are political people who are elected to office. It's for the Constitution, for the American people. So I hope that kind of frames where I'm going to go from there. Uh, I just want to give a couple anecdotal examples of doing the right thing, uh, more, what's morally, morally right and just in the face of not just tyranny, but of, of circumstances. And I'll, I'll go back to the Gulf War. I was a lieutenant in the first Gulf War uh, when we went against the Republican Guard and the Iraqis, uh, my first experience in combat, uh, one I didn't expect to come home from. I actually made my peace that I would never get home from that conflict because we were told going into Iraq that this is the world's third largest army, 750,000 soldiers. That was true. That the Republican Guards were an elite unit and we'd be facing them. That was true. Uh, but I suppose I should have thought about this and said, wait a second. The Iraqi army fought the Iranians for nine years. And the Iranians sent kids through minefields, the sweep of minefields with their feet, walking through to be blown up. Now, how can they not defeat an army that's that weak? I should have thought about that, but the point is that uh, I made my peace. I would ne may never come home from that conflict when I went, and um, so every day has been a blessing since then. So you know, every day I get up every day, and people ask me today, Chris, how are you today? I usually say older, <laughs> right? What's the alternative? If you're not older, you're under. So um, I, every day has been a blessing since then, and I, and I, I don't take it for granted. I'm very grateful to be alive and experience life. Although I'm heart sore at what's happening in the world today, the erosion of liberty. The blocking of Australian citizens in penal colonies, which is what I call them. They call them, you know, <coughs> camps, but I call them penal colonies. I mean, if you have somebody that tests positive for a pathogen in the building you work in, and then you're locked up for three weeks and you lose your job because they locked you away and you test negative for that pathogen three times, yet they threaten to put you in an actual prison if you don't go with them, it's not liberty. That's what's happening in Australia. Many Australians have stood up for their freedom and liberty. I've covered live events in Australia, and the world really missed this. You know, there were 600,000 people in Melbourne who showed up in a rally against Dan Andrews and Scott, uh, Dan Andrews and, um, Scott uh, Morrison. 600,000, and that was one weekend. Consistently, they had over 400,000 people show up in rally after rally after rally. And what happened? Nothing. It didn't change the Australian government's hands. And what happened to Australians a few years ago? Does anybody know what happened to them a few years ago? They were disarmed. 
and it took their firearms away. Now, I'm not saying that people should have firearms from insurrection. What I'm saying is that the founders of my country recognized the greatest danger to liberty and morality wasn't a foreign enemy, but the government itself. Those of you here in South Africa, that might resonate with you today, especially if you look at what happened in KwaZulu-Natal and Hauteng last year, and what I've termed since the day it occurred, the ANC's internal insurrection, in which the Radical Economic Transformation Faction and other factions with the ANC went to war with each other, and what I think may be a dress rehearsal for what could come. I'm not trying to scare anybody, just saying it's pretty odd that on the 29th of June, when the Constitutional Court declared that Jacob Zuma was in contempt of court, that on that day, you can go watch my video, I predicted chaos in KwaZulu-Natal, especially around in Kanwa, the home of Jacob Zuma. And as we watched, the directive was for Jacob Zuma to turn himself in the 4th of July. I'll never forget that, of course, that is our Independence Day, so that sticks in my head forever. So by midnight on the 4th of July, Jacob Zuma was supposed to turn himself into a correctional facility. Originally, it was just a, a correctional facility, but then they upgraded him to the escort. That's the newer one. It's nice there. So they put him in escort. Um, so he was supposed to be there by midnight. Well, he didn't go. In fact, um, he stood on the stage with um, Carl Niehaus. Um, I have a different name for him, which is not the right word to say in this crowd, but <laughs> I call him something else. It's probably fair what that word is. But Carl Niehaus and um, also um, Ace Montesquieu and others standing on the stage, not wearing facial coverings in violation of lockdown rules, assembling with thousands of people in violation of lockdown rules, um, and dancing and toy toying, you know. <laughs> and then he said he can't go to jail because his health would be in <laughs> Apparently, when you're in Conla, there's like a magic bubble. So you can stand right next to somebody and you can't pass. But when you go to jail and you sit in a cell all by yourself, you're going to get it. Anyway, so the point of the story with that is he didn't turn himself in. Well, one other part of that decision by the Constitutional Court was that the police commissioner, who's since moved on, I think it's Sotoli, if I remember correctly, I may be wrong about the name, and Becca Chile, the Call them whatever you want. I pronounce it Shelley. It sounds cool. Back at Silly. Uh, they were responsible for ensuring that if he didn't turn himself in by the 4th of July, that they had interned him at the correctional facility by midnight on the 8th. Well, that didn't happen, did it? Remember the events? I streamed it live. I covered the events live. At 11.25 in the evening, like a conquering hero, Jacob Zuma rolls out in his big blue light escort motorcade and drives escort and turns himself in at 2 o'clock in the morning. In violation of his court order, for the fourth, and technically that made both Beckett Sealy and the um, commissioner of police in contempt of court because they didn't carry out the order, did they now? Has anyone been charged in that? Zoyland Keesey, the special investigating unit, has discovered that he, according to them, they have evidence, evidence they claim he's violated the law with the digital vibes contract. South Africans seem to think that that's over. I don't. Well, he's not the health minister anymore, but he still sits in the parliament and collects a paycheck. Where are the criminal charges against Zoyla Mkizi? Where are the criminal charges against Zandile Gumeda in Itequini or Durban? Hundreds of criminal acts yet to be prosecuted, delay after delay. We could go on for hours about the dozens of cases against Julius Malema for his flaunting of the law. And now we see a ridiculous court decision handed down, which is immoral by a judge who only I can best describe best company has his fourth point of contact located in the wrong place of his body. Um, how in the world can the judge make the determination that Ernst Rutz is not an expert witness and that he's biased? I'll accept that. We'll go with that, okay? But in the same breath, say that the evidence that Julius Molina gave was compelling. I'm sorry, I saw the trial. What evidence did he present? Fingerprints? Documents? 
audio recordings, video recording, what evidence? He gave an opinion. Everybody here has an opinion, including me. That's not evidence, that's testimony, right? That's testimony, that's not evidence. That's an immoral decision. People can walk around inciting people to violence by singing Kill the Boar. How do you overcome this sort of thing? That's the question, the world that we live in today. It's absolutely, for lack of a better word, demonic in my view. It's sick, it's twisted. Now, I don't want to frighten people and say there's no hope here, but um, and maybe we might talk about Cape Secession later on. If you've got questions about it, we can get to that um, happily, and I'll, as an American, answer them for you as best I can. But the world truly is upside down. I was mentioned downstairs to Dr. Hammond and Dennis and Jack and the others were sitting at the table, and I said, when the British Army surrendered at Yorktown, I think it was 1781 or 1783, 1781 because Peace of Paris, 1783, 1781, the British Army was defeated by the French fleet and the American forces under General Washington, they marched out and surrendered, and the band played, the world turned upside down. <laughs> I think that's the apropos song for what's going on in the world today. So let me give an example of something. It's just a small thing. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not a boast. So I hope you won't take it that way, but because it's not really much to boast about. <laughs> but a situation where I thought I did the right thing at a time that was a very, a time fraught with danger and a time that was uncertain and, and, and how you have to stick to your moral convictions regardless of the challenges. So if, if you're not impressed by the story, that's fine. I just want to share it just just so you have an idea. So I was a lieutenant in the Gulf War, which I started with a few minutes ago, and I was in an army unit. Now, a little backstory to that, so hopefully you'll find this entertaining. Uh, when we arrived in Iraq, we were the second wave of troops that came from Germany. I was stationed in Germany in the 3rd Battalion, 8th Cavalry, which had M1A1 heavy tanks. And heavy is a good description. Those things weigh 63 tons. They're huge. Anyway, they were the most advanced tanks in the U.S. Army. There were only two battalions in the entire army that had that particular model, and one of them was my battalion. So when we arrived, the Iraqi leaders told their soldiers, Bush is sending elite Russian killers. They're coming. You'll know them because they wear green uniforms. See, all the troops in the States got desert camouflage. They looked all sexy. They showed up. Chocolate chip uniforms. Yeah, check that out. We had the same green uniforms we always had, and that's what we wore went to combat. In fact, I didn't get the, the desert camouflage until it was time to fly back and they wouldn't let me get on the plane unless I had desert camouflage. <laughs> so, I'm like, well, I can't go to the store and buy them. So they, they issued us and I got a pair of pants that came up to here and uh, sleeves that came up to here and a hat that I couldn't get on my head. Uh, fortunately, I knew somebody um, who was a friend of mine went to university with me and she was a lieutenant and I saw her and she said, no, go talk to Sergeant so-and-so and I exchanged it and I got the uniform. But anyway, the point of the story is that they told, they told them we were elite Russian killers and we don't surrender to them. Don't you fight to the death. And uh, anyway, so that context matters because in the midst of a battle against the Republican Guard, we, well, excuse me, it was, uh, I think it was the 63rd Infantry Division. We fought against the, uh, the Iraqis and um, they were trying to surrender. And so we brought them in and I had some soldiers who were being rough with them. They were pushing around and doing certain things. But the Geneva Convention has rules for the treatment of prisoners of war. And I was interrogating, no, not with rubber hoses, that's not interrogation, that's torture. I was interrogating, which means questioning the Iraqis to find out what was going on. I was an intelligence officer, and I had an Eritrean who was an American citizen, but grew up in Eritrea, and he was a medic in our battalion. So because he was Muslim, he spoke Arabic. So I used him as my interpreter to, to interrogate these guys to find out what was going on. And uh, while I was doing the interrogation, no rubber hoses, just sitting over here talking to the gentleman, some of the soldiers were grabbing the Iraqis and pushing them and shoving with rifles. And I saw it and I got up and I ran over and I very loudly told them, I said, stop, knock it off. They're soldiers. You disarm them, you get their identification, you identify them, and you move them safely to the rear. That's how we do it. We follow the rule of law. Now, unfortunately, 
uh, and the rule of law went land warfare. But unfortunately, we've had some things. Uh, so before Jeremy throws darts at me, Abu Ghraib, yes, I know, abuses occurred there. That's a separate issue. This is a different war. Uh, my point is that we're in the middle of combat. There's artillery rounds going off, and there's other things happening. But there was no need to mistreat those prisoners. Um, odds are they didn't ask to be there. Odds are they were simply put there. In fact, a number of the Iraqi prisoners of war that we captured were university students who'd been in university in the States, undergraduate, postgraduate, and they got home in our summertime, you know, Northern Hemisphere, they got, in our home, uh, they got home in the summertime to Iraq to see their family because there was a break from June to September. And Saddam Hussein invades on August 2nd, Kuwait. And then all the Iraqis who were university students from the States who were back in Iraq were drafted and sent to the front lines. With no training, by the way. <laughs> they were just sent to the front lines. Whew, that's not very moral now, is it? Anyway, so look, it's just a small example of doing the right thing at the right time. Now, what I do on my channel is I, 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 I like to say I subvert expectations. Uh, I've been attacked because of my appearance. My, I, I realize I'm pigmentationally challenged, so that, that's an issue for some people. So, you know, I try to deal with that. I, think, I hope you get the joke there. Nobody laughed at that. So, anyway. Um, I do a show called Kenako uh, on my program, on my channel, and that's with myself, Koketsu Razani, who's the South African conservative. Yes, he's black. Uh, and Dumo Denga. Yes, he's black. He's conservative as well. One works in IT, one works in finance. And this fellow named Zuzo, who hasn't shown up for the show yet. So I told him when he came to my meet Greek Pretoria that we voted him off the island. He's no longer welcome. So, But we're going to replace him with someone. Just kidding. But uh, anyway, so on that show, I was introduced to the program, and I said I'm the pigmentationally challenged person on the program. So anyway, he didn't laugh. It's, sometimes the joke works, sometimes it doesn't. Anyway. Whatever. Anyway, so uh, that's just one example of doing the right thing. On my channel, I like to expose hypocrisy. For those of you who know my channel or have been interviewed by me, that's passive voice. Those whom I've interviewed, that's active voice. I prefer that. Those of you whom I've interviewed, there's a few in the room I've interviewed. First off, thank you for being on my program. And I really appreciate you. Thank you for helping me expose what's really happening in South Africa and around the world. I like to expose hypocrisy. And listen, we have hypocrisy in America. <laughs> you know, we have a $2.8 trillion deficit this year. That's more than the combined gross domestic product or national product of over half the planet. Think about that. That's insane. So we got lots of hypocrisy in my country. So I'm not, I'm not someone living in a glass house throwing stones. I'll be the first person to admit our shortcomings and my own personal shortcomings. Uh, but uh, the point is that just because you have shortcomings doesn't mean you can't analyze and point out the, the failures that are going on around you. So I like to subvert expectations. People have certain expectations when they look at you. Now listen, as human beings, it's natural to look at someone and make an assumption. Well, that's a very attractive person. Uh, that's, that person looks evil. That person says that's the other. But I like to make a distinction between bigotry and racism. And for me, let me try to explain this from my perspective. I'm going a little off track, but it kind of ties into the topic here. It'll make sense in a bit. So what people often describe as racism to me is simply bigotry. And the distinction I make of the definition of the two is that for me, the definition of racism is when you determine people by appearance as being a different race, although we're all the same human race. I kind of missed that class, but anyway. And then you make a decision for or against them based on their skin color. And you take action to their advantage or their disadvantage. So I would classify broad-based black economic empowerment as racism. It gives advantage to people on the simple basis of their skin pigmentation. That's not right. When the National Party did it the other way around, it wasn't right either, was it? Right? It wasn't right. So it's not right to do it. It's not right to... We have systemic racism in America. That's a phrase that throughout. I call it systemic racism. I'm talking about affirmative action. 
People get automatic entry in the university based on skin color. That's not right. How is anybody uplifted by that? It isn't. So anyway, bigotry, on the other hand, is a learned behavior. And we're all bigoted in some way. All right? Give an example. Um, New York City. Poor guy standing in the corner with the pants hanging halfway down. Under a street light that's burned out. Kids come along. They walk around the opposite street. And they go down to avoid. Because their natural instincts, there might be something bad there. Now, if it's white kids, they're called racist. When the black kids do it, they're just called smart. Well, I would argue that all the kids are smart. Now, that's bigotry. Those kids may be doing nothing wrong under that light, but you don't know that. You're making a decision. But you didn't make a decision to harm them directly. So, anyway, uh, we had a television show when I was a kid in America called All in the Family. Some in the room might be old enough to remember it. <laughs> Maybe not everyone. But All in the Family had a character named Archie Bunker, played by Carol O'Connor. And the show was, um, was, this guy was the biggest bigot in the history of mankind. So he was an Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. And if you weren't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, he didn't like you. His wife to him was a dingbat, because she was a woman. His daughter, he loved his daughter, but he had some frustration with her. His son-in-law was Polish, and he didn't like him because he was Polish. He wasn't Anglo-Saxon, he was Catholic, so there's another issue. His neighbor was black, George Jefferson, so he had issues because he was black. And um, he had issues with Jews and other things. The funny thing happened on that show. Um, the creator of that show was brilliant, in my view, as an adult now, looking back. Over time, the character changed and became less of a bigot. And what happened was, for instance, um, he was in the hospital one time. It's a sitcom. It's a comedy show. Not as funny as Orton Starkman, but it's still funny. Anyway, but uh, Carol O'Connor, the character, went to the hospital and he got a blood transfusion. And you should have seen his face when he found out that the blood donor was black. So, <laughs> oh, I didn't turn black. I didn't die. So anyway, the point is, his views were bigotry. He wasn't a racist. He didn't hate black people. He didn't hate Jews. He didn't hate Polacks. Why well, he hated Polacks? I don't know. But anyway, uh, we say Poles and he said Polacks. The point is that he was a bigot and he learned that his views, which were learned behavior, maybe weren't the right views. And he adapted his behavior at times. So that's where I make the distinction between bigotry and racism. Most times when you hear people say that's racist, it's simply bigotry. Some bigotry is good. You're alive because of bigotry sometimes. It's like discrimination. There's nothing wrong with discrimination. <gasps> Did you just say that? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with discrimination. You discriminate every day. You go to the store. That dress looks horrible. I'm not buying that one. Okay? That looks lovely. Or you discriminate against the service provider for your phone service. Who has Vodacom? All right. Who has MTN? Why don't you have Vodacom? You discriminate against MTN. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, my point is that the words are thrown around and they lose their meaning. What's the word that has the least currency right now in the world? Racism. Everything's racist. Well, not everything's racist, anyway. And I think that in the face of, of that stupidity, as I would call it, standing up and, and saying the things I'm saying, I think it takes, a, I'm not for myself, but for everybody, it takes a bit of moral courage. And it's doing the right thing and exposing things. It's not easy, particularly in a place like South Africa where people are pillared all the time for simply an opinion. You know, I find it the height of frightening state development when a country must criminalize speech because their feelings are hurt. And there's a certain word that comes from Arabic that begins with a K. You say that in South Africa, you cause criminal injury, which I think is a ludicrous thing. If your feelings are so fragile that you're harmed by what someone says, then maybe there's something wrong with you. Now, I'm not saying that people should use that word. It's foul, it's impolite, it's wrong, just like the N-word English, I think it's wrong. And I think it's morally bankrupt. It also shows, a, in my view, a degree of lesser sophistication when you revert to that sort of thing. 
Now that's ironic having I having just let loose with a profane tirade on a channel for someone the other night, which I did, which I've never done before, but so I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> that was wrong with me, but I didn't use those words. I used other words, which you're familiar with. My point is that um, when the governor, like the African National Congress ruling this country, criminalizes that speech, which isn't shouting fire in a crowd of fear, right? It isn't inciting people to violence. It's simply offending someone. How sad is a government like that? The government that has free speech enshrined in its constitution. That's, that's the world you folks are living in South Africa. Or did I miss a beat? I got that right. Yes? It's kind of sad. It's really sad. Especially in a country that's as diverse as this. You know, on this trip, people have asked me, they said, so Chris, what's the best part of your trip? And I knew what the best part of the trip was going to be before I ever came. And it's been consistently that, yes, the garden route was lovely. It was great. Um, yes, Uppington reminded me of Botswana. It's just like being back in Botswana. I landed a plane. It's like, oh, it's like Operani. It looks the same. Uh, and yes, it was nice to get back northwest and get on a farm and see folks I knew and meet Botswana up there because it's something I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I'm fond of, Botswana people. And also Afrikaners all over the country and others. That's all <laughs> fine. But seeing the natural beauty of South Africa is one thing, but the people of South Africa is what makes the difference for me. Uh, there isn't really another country in the world like this. You go to Namibia, you've got Afrikaners, you've got Germans, yeah, they're still there, they're influential. And you've got Nama, and you've got San, you've got Sankoy, you've got all kinds of people. But still, it's not South Africa. No place like South Africa. And for me, it's the people. You know, I had um, what I call the rainbow rescue. I'm going to get a little bit off the morality. Is that okay, Is okay Dr. Kevin, if I keep going? Okay. All right, then I'll take some questions here shortly. But I have what I call the rainbow rescue. And I, does, does anybody in the crowd know about this story already? Nobody? Okay, great, then I'll tell you. All right, so so I, I was uh, in uh, Zeerust, where I met with the Forum for Democrats, which is a local Tswana-based political party that stood for the elections in November. They were cheated out of a seat that they won legitimately in the election. I found out about it, and I interfered in their elections. Sorry, but I did. And um, we got it sorted out through a, a, attorneys and a civil rights group that got the Independent Electoral Commission to correct their error and remove the EFF from the seat that they were erroneously awarded and give it to this party. So they were really excited for me to come up there. I went and saw them, and then I spoke with farmers about an hour after that uh, from the Mariko area of the Northwest. Um, so I did that, and then the next morning I stayed uh, with uh, one of the people I do a program with, Koketsu Ritsani, his mother, near the border of Botswana. She's a lovely lady, lovely home in the midst of some crazy village. Anyway, that's how I describe it. So in the morning she gets a phone call, service delivery protest. Except it wasn't a service delivery protest. They have their Bernie tires, they're blocking the road, I can't get through and get back to Zeros and on to Rustenburg. But it wasn't about that. It was about the Toitsi paying uh, kids to go out and burn tires because they wanted to tender for the water. They all have water, but they're pretending there wasn't water. Anyway, so that's not the point of the story. So his mother shows me around, I drive an hour and a half behind the mountain, down the ridge, out the other side, and I pop out one kilometer from where I started. Well, I was going to go to the canopy tour, but there's no time for that. So. Uh, now an hour and a half later than I expected to be down the road, and uh, there's 200 SAPS officers there. They're checking insurance and license. That's cool. It's good to see they're doing safety checks. And when the guy finished with me, I looked at him, I said, could you do me a favor? Could you guys go one kilometer that direction and stop the illegal service delivery protest? <laughs> to which his response was, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, his, respect, his expression was that, but I, mean, I was like, brother, what do you want me to do? I mean, I go where I'm told. I think that's what he's trying to tell me. Anyway, we both chuckled, and I drove on. So I was no hurry now because I'm missing the canopy tour. Got to Rustenburg. I topped off my vehicle at the BP station there by the Waterfalls Mall, a place I've been a thousand times. Went to McDonald's. Yes, I know it's not a good choice, but I was hungry, short on time, I'm behind schedule. So I went to McDonald's and I paid my cereal tax, okay, because you know you have McDonald's. 
Anyway, so I got my McDonald's. I got in the car. I'm not in a hurry. I got a milkshake sitting over here on the floor. I got a Coke over here. I know it's bad, but I had it anyway. And I'm eating a burger. I turn off a crude dog. Not in a hurry. Now I'm not going to go to the canopy tour, so I'm just going to go to Sterkfontein where I'm going to meet some of my viewers and do the cave tour, which I've done before. So um, I'm driving, and all of a sudden, I've driven South Africa for going in 30 years. I've never had a flat tire. I've never damaged the rim. Guess what? <laughs> Scalloped road with holes this deep on the edge of the road. No surface on the side. Just so I see it. Honestly, goodness, I have the video, by the way. I have a dashboard camera. I recorded every kilometer of travel in South Africa on the dashboard camera. It's gigabytes of data. Anyway, and I backed up multiple locations. So uh, I'll probably release this video when I blew the rims. Uh, but I will exclude one word that I said that's not a polite word. <laughs> so that'll be leaked out when you see the video. But anyway, I, uh, so I see the pothole, and I'm only going 60. And that's why I told you the camera, because there's proof I was only going 60. So I was going 60 and 80 zone. So I, I, I'm, I'm riding in the world's worst car. Has anyone ever heard of Renault Quid? <laughs> Listen, when I go see St. Peter, I think I deserve a free pass for driving Renault Quid. I think it's horrible, horrible. It was unfair. No one's to be subjected to that. Going up a hill, oh! You know, I could get out and push the car up the hill faster. Anyway, I digress. So back to the story. So um, I see the pothole. And I swerve. Now, the good news is the Renault Quid is the size of, you know, this, this podium, you know. So I can get over a little bit, but not all the way because there's oncoming traffic, okay? Fortunately, nobody was passing, you know, where they passed and they hit the four ways and thanked them and they come over my lane, so that wasn't happening. But I didn't see the other pothole. Two rims. It's all I can do to control it. I pull over the side. Don't worry, I'm getting to the point of the story, the Rainbow Rescue. And this is a good story for South Africa. So I pull over and I get out. I'm like, oh, no. That's not good. So I go about 10 kilometers per hour, literally, because I don't want to tear the rubber up because the tires are flat. And there's a tuck shop. Serendipitous, right? There's a tuck shop right up the street or up the road. About 100 meters. And I pull in there and I walk inside knowing that no one has this, but hoping that someone might help me. Does anyone have an air compressor? What happened? I said, I just blew two tires. And the Indian tuck shop owner looks at me and goes, happens every day. Was it 100 meters down the road? I said, yes. Every day someone does that. Okay, well, that's nice to know, but it doesn't really help my situation. So thank you for that, sir. Um, and uh, so I walk outside, and this Alfred Connery kid comes over, and he goes, um, let's take the stuff out of your boot. Let's get the, we'll get the car jacked up. Um, he's like, we'll change tires. I'm like, yeah, I got two flats. I got one tire. I'm still going to be sitting here with missing a tire. He goes, let's just take a look at it. So we open the boot up. I put all my stuff next to the tree, and there's no jack handle. And there's no lug wrench. Well, this is special. How are we going to do this? Maybe divine intervention. I can pray get some help me take care of this, but there's no way to fix this. So a Tswana guy pulls up in his truck. He came on his lunch break, and he's got a work utility truck. He's bucky, and um, he comes over and he goes, hmm. once he gets his lunch, the, the, the offer counter kid uh, goes to his truck and gets a, uh, a screwdriver. Now, it's a small car. It doesn't weigh much, so he's able to crank it up while I'm standing there. I'm just amazed at what's going on. And then the, the Tswana guy gets a lug wrench, but it just spins around because it's too big, so he gets a ratchet from his truck, and he breaks the lug nuts, and they take it off, and the front tire's got two dents in it this deep right off that's what i thought anyway so um he says we can beat that with a hammer i'm like oh man you got a lot of faith i don't know about that anyway so so um he uh he says he's gonna beat it with that hammer and then um we're there and he starts beating the rims oh i'm sorry the indian guy comes out with a hammer so that's that's a contribution from the indian guy so he comes out with a hammer and then the swan guy just starts beating the rims i mean beating them hard and they're going back in shape and i'm like yeah 
Yeah, I don't know if I might drive on that. <laughs> you know, that's, I might have to start going to church. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's <laughs> anyway, but uh, so um, then this other Afrikaner guy comes out, an older gentleman. He says, well, I have an air compressor in my car. Oh, cool. This is a little small. So he brings it out. It's like this big. <laughs> that big. I'm, there's, look, I embellish, but there's no embellishment in this part of the story. Okay? So we hook it up, and it's like, <laughs> and Swana guy's like, look, I need to get back to work. I'll take him to the petrol station. So we hop in his truck and we go to a petrol station and we fill the one tire up that he dented and it holds. I'm like, ooh. So he puts it in the back of the truck and the other one with the two dents it just keeps leaking. So they pour water over it. And when they pour the water over it, then he sees, keeps beating on it. It stops leaking. I'm like, okay, we check the pressure. It's good. We go back and, um, he puts both tires back on. Well, he puts the one in the trunk that had two dents on. He puts the spare on the back and the other in the front. And um, I, gave him, I gave him some money. Thank you for his time. You know, I appreciate it. And then I get on the road. Now, <laughs> I call it my rainbow rescue because here I am in Northwest. Nobody I know. This is the true nature of South Africans, in my view. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong. An Indian fellow provides a hammer. A Tswana guy beats the rams to death and makes it work and puts them back on. And the Afrikaner kid, and the guy with the compressor too, <laughs> they jump in and help. Everybody help them. Now, I have no doubt that if I broke down on the N4, I probably would have had smashed windows and my stuff would have been stolen out of the car. But the good nature of the true face of South Africans, their moral just, and their, their willingness to work together, I think I experienced on that day right there on the road in Northwest. And it was, look, I was very disappointed to be breaking down because now I don't, I don't like being late. It's something I really don't like being. In fact, I came here today, so I wouldn't be late for Dr. Hamden wearing shorts directly from the airport. And now I, I'm going to need the good grace of somebody to give me a ride north of here because I have no transport when I'm done. The point is I gave up my transport and my vehicle to make sure I was here on time because I don't like to make people wait. If you can avoid it, I always avoid making people wait because I think it's rude. Anyway, so I was going to get to the uh, to the uh, caves, and that's my rainbow rescue. And that's I think that's a good story. You'll never hear a story like that uh, in the South African press about how South Africans work together. I mentioned earlier talking downstairs about doing the right thing. I went to Durban to Chatsworth. And the story we hear about the insurrection last year is that Indians were hunting down black South Africans in Durban, in Phoenix, in place like the Phoenix accused their whole situation. So Karo Chara, who's an Indian comedian and he's an comedian activist, we've done some broadcasts together. And also he's been on the ground reporting when um, the EFF showed up in Phoenix uh, with an illegal, uh, illegal number of demonstrators and things like that. He covered that. So he took me to Chatsworth, which is where he lives. And he told me the history of Chatsworth and the Group Aries Act and all and how the, 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 the settlement has developed since then. And uh, we went to the saddest, horrible looking, informal places where people live on the side of the cliff. And Zulus and Indians, side by side, living in the same poverty, not killing each other, getting along. So uh, I think that was the right thing for, for Cara Chira to do, to share that with me. But do you read that in the Daily? Do you read that in the Mail Guardian? Do you see that in News 24? Do you see that in, in any news source in South Africa, SBC? No. In fact, what you get from SABC is the following. In the early stages of lockdown, you may have seen this. I know I saw it and I haven't forgotten. In the early stages of lockdown, an SABC reporter, SABC reporter went to Pretoria West, to the north side of the ridge line, to a squatter camp full of white South Africans and a few colors who were there, whites and colors. And he went there and this is what he said. Do you feel guilty that you don't let black people live in your informal settlement? What? These people are poor. They have no money. And you think they're excluding people? Look, you know what? I have no electricity. I have no water. But you know what? Why don't you come stay with me? Come on. Everybody come over here and be poor like I am. 
It's ludicrous. But that's that's what SABC was doing in the early stages of lockdown. And how stupid is that? Were they going to informal settlements where only black South Africans living? How come you let white people here? It's stupid. This is what these people do. These elites who run the world today. They seek to divide, bifurcate, separate us. Look, I, I don't I don't mean to sound faithful, religious, but aren't we all God's children? Right? We shouldn't have to deal with this nonsense. But we do. And some people are sheep. Not the good kind of sheep. But the kind of sheep that are easily misled and they go down a path that um, is not a good path. So it's difficult to stand up, especially in my view in South Africa, what's right, moral, just. But you have to. You have to take a stand. Now, don't endanger your safety by taking that stand, because that's dangerous. You need to live for another day. But um, it's important that you stand up for what's right and wrong. And I, I shared with a couple of you earlier and with Dr. Hammond on the broadcast, I told him the story of Chatsworth. I haven't shared with you the story of the farmer, have I yet? Or have I forgotten where I'm at my place in this conversation? So let me tell you about something else. When I was in Zeros, I was asked to speak to farmers, and I did. I, I, I was a dairy farmer in high school, and I, I have great respect for farmers. Great respect for all people, but a special affinity for farmers, among others, like I do with soldiers. So I um, was happy to speak to them. Unfortunately, they didn't tell me the topic until I arrived, so I really didn't have a chance to prepare for it. And um, they didn't tell me the location, but I guessed the right place because I knew it was so I figured out where they'd be. So I got there in plenty of time, and then I spoke to them. I'm not so sure I did a great job. They complimented me, but I, I don't think I knocked it out of the park. Or, you know, I think they got the wicked. I missed it or something like that. Anyway, so I'm trying to use a cricket reference, but I don't like cricket. I'm a rugby, I'm a rugby guy, so anyway. I, I, here we go. I, I know that I did have downward pressure on the ball when I hit the try line. So, <laughs> so that, that shows that I didn't, I, I, didn't think I, hit, I didn't think I knocked it out of the park. Anyway, the point of the story is that was that uh, sadly, um, oh no, after that, there was a bride, and um, I hung out and I talked to smaller groups of the people who were there. It was about 220 farmers from the Mariko, Mariko area that showed up in Northwest. Three nights after that, Peter von der Westhuizen was on community safety patrol and he was murdered. Uh, a gentleman I met that night. And it's beyond tragic, it's horrific. Um, what the press has not told you in South Africa is the following, and this is fact. I'll take a polygraph on this. Or there were a lot of people are lying to me that I know, that I trust. Um, he was on a patrol, and they responded to an attack against the farmer. When they responded to an attack against the farmer, he was shot, and they bled profusely. I don't know if they had a femoral artery or whatever, but they couldn't save him. They lost too much blood. Peter von Westweizen gave his life defending Daniel Salike's farm. Well, that's an Afrikaner, right? Salike? That's a black farmer. It's a black South African farmer. He gave his life as a farmer for his community, going out and protecting a black farmer. Which news source told you that in South Africa? If you, I know you believe me. If you don't believe me, I'll give you my sources. How sad is it that people don't tell you that? Instead, they want to tell you that Brockenfell's a racist school because there's no black students there. What? I've been to Brockenfell's. Mostly colors and whites who live there. Am I wrong? You guys are around here. That's right. Is that right? Okay. So how many Afrikaner teachers or English-speaking teachers work in Umlundi? How come that's not a problem? It's not a problem. And it's not a problem there aren't black teachers in, in school that's predominantly occupied by white colored students. It's not a problem. It's stupid race hustling. It's immoral. It's unjust. Or unjust, that's a better word. Unjust there. It's, it's wrong. But that's the world we live in. It's absolutely the world we live in. Um, you got to stand up for what's right. Peter von der Westhuizen stood up for what was right and tried to protect a community member who happened to be black. Not because he was black, but because he was a farmer and he's a community member. And the world needs to know about that. Babita Deo Karan. Say her name. Babita Deo Karan. 
Whistleblower, assassinated after she dropped her daughter off last year. Dropped her daughter off at primary school, came back, died in a hail of bullets because she had the dirt on the criminals that are running this government. And she could expose them. So they had her assassinated. It's tragic. It's wrong. It's immoral. But that's what happens. In Natal, in the last decade, something like 88 or 100 members of local councils were assassinated. Not by right-wing extremists, not by foreign terrorists, not by domestic terrorists, but by ANC party members who wanted the council seats so they could get their fingers on the tenders. Immoral. Wrong. How many people know about this? Now, I sit in Pennsylvania right now, and I know about it. There's a lot of people around the world who are willfully ignorant, and I think that's morally bankrupt. Anyway, so I like to speak up about it. I think maybe now we should take some questions or take a pause. What do you want to do, Dr. Hammond? Questions. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Where can you find information that's um, not so politically You're asking in general, where can a person find information that's not so politically skewed? Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, but the key is the following. Unfortunately, in our education system, and I'm pretty confident it's the same thing in South Africa, instead of developing young adults who are critical thinkers, we've not been doing that for the past three or four decades. So in most cases, kids aren't getting a proper education to think critically. I would argue that I didn't get that education. I got a good education in public schools as far as I could read and write, and I knew history, and I knew geography, and I could, well, I'm good at math. I can't say I was good at that. But uh, I learned, but I wasn't taught to think critically. And I don't need to be critical. Cyril Ramaphosa, he's terrible. Okay, that's being critical. It's also true, but it's just being critical. But think critically. So, for instance, let me ask you this. I flew from Harrisburg to Chicago, okay? Without getting my channel in trouble here, I'm being careful here. I flew from Harrisburg to Chicago, no facial covering. I was in Chicago, 18,000 people in the airport, like right up next to each other, no facial covering. Lufthansa made me wear a mask to fly to Frankfurt, eight and a half hours on a plane. I got off the plane in Frankfurt, so they must have a facial requirement. In, in, no, 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 no facial covering at the airport in Frankfurt, eight hours. Then I got a plane to Cape Town, guess what? I had to wear a facial cover for 12 and a half hours. And I got off the plane, Cape Town, there's no coverings in the airport. So critical thinking be like, now why is that? Does that make sense? Maybe it does, maybe I'm not a scientist, maybe I don't understand engineering and particles and, you know, it's possible, I just don't get it. But a critical thinker would go, wait a second, that don't make no sense. And so I was like, how come Every time the Springboks lose, there's a French referee involved. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> That's true. I'm just kidding. It's also Australian and Kiwis, too. Anyway, so, anyway. but seriously, um, how do you find, your question is, how do you find news sources that, that aren't? It's almost impossible. Look, I'm biased. I am. I'm biased. But I'm honest. I'll tell you my bias. America's the greatest country in the world. <laughs> it doesn't look that way at the moment, but, but we are the greatest country in the world. That's bias. Uh, now, I think I can support that with facts, but some people say Iceland's better. Okay, fine, you can win. It's a little country, you can have it. <laughs> we win all the gold medals anyway. So, anyway, but um, it's difficult. What I, what I urge you to do even is read the politically biased things. Read them as well. The, before the, 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 the pandemic, there were so many magazines out there. I used to have 43 magazine subscriptions per month. I read them all, cover to cover. Yes, I do sleep uh, every third Thursday for five minutes. Um, whether I want to or not. 
And so, but I did read them all. Um, I don't have 43 anymore now because it, a lot of them folded and not around anymore. But one of the magazines I used to buy off the newsstand was um, Africa, or Business Africa, you know, I think it's what it's called. And another one, which is, there's another one, I can't think of it right now, so I apologize. But uh, the Business Africa is a really good magazine. It's objective. It reports news. Something Bloomberg used to do, doesn't do anymore. Something Business Week used to do in America until Michael Bloomberg bought it from McGraw-Hill, and now it's just a propaganda outlet. So everything is green this, green that, you know, terrible people, this, you know, subsidies are wonderful, you know, handouts are wonderful. That is, that is not a business magazine, that's a propaganda outlet. So this magazine for Africa, Business Africa, was very objective and already. But the same publishing house produces a leftist, slimy, you know, anti-white colonialism and everybody, every problem in Africa is because of colonialism. Nobody's responsible for it except the evil colonialists. And we all know whose fault it is. We all know whose fault it is. Let's be honest. Jan von Riebeck started all this. <laughs> Poor Jan. Poor Jan. He should have a clothing line. It's my fault. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so um, seriously, don't take my idea. I want residuals on it. <laughs> if you start merchandise, I want my cut. Anyway, just treat it like I'm a caterer. Give me money under the table. A little envelope. It's good. A little box cheese there. Anyway, but seriously, um, it's difficult. But I encourage you to read the things that aren't biased. But think critically. Think, why is the author writing this? Let me give you a perfect story. This is good, Dr. Hammond. I'm glad we started taking questions here because this is a good point. So Doug Mastriano is a retired U.S. Army colonel like I am. He's an intelligence officer like I am, or we were. Uh, we both worked at the War College. He retired two years before me. He's running for governor of Pennsylvania. Recently, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a leftist, slimy piece of garbage newspaper. Yes, that's right. That's what I said. Uh, anyway, so um, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran an article about him in which they said, Doug Mastriano is deleting videos from his Facebook page. <gasps> What is he hiding? They hired a Harvard disinformation expert from Harvard University. It's in the newspaper, so I'm just trying to play the newspaper. Uh, Doug Mastriano deleted 14 videos from his Facebook page. It could be that he doesn't want people to know about his past. We know that he's a religious zealot. He's anti-abortion. He'll take abortion rights away from people. And that must be what it's all about. I interviewed Doug Mastriano. Doug, uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer says you deleted Videos from your website, Facebook. Is that true? Yes, it is, Chris. Uh, Doug, why? Well, they're older videos, and you know, Facebook, they don't get much traction, so after 30 days, I tend to delete videos, and I just deleted you know, a few videos the other day. Okay, are you hiding something? No. Doug, did the Philadelphia Inquirer contact you or someone in your campaign to ask you what I just asked you? No. Ooh! I thought critically. I saw nothing in the article from Philadelphia Inquirer saying that we attempted to contact Doug Mastrano and he refused to comment or was unavailable, or his campaign. If you read an article and there's a political candidate running for office and they don't contact the political candidate and they hire a disinformation expert to analyze what the person was thinking, that should have red flags all over. That's critical thinking. Dr. Hamlet, would you agree? Sure. Okay, cool beans. All right, he's a smart guy, so I'm making sure I'm on track here. Okay, so if you didn't know that already, he's a smart guy. Anyway, so, um, yeah, that's a critical thing. So I encourage you to read those bad, different sources, different source information. Look, I, the, if you were to ask me to evaluate some news sources, I would say the Daily Maverick used to be an incredible newspaper, but today one-third of its articles are leftist garbage and propaganda. That's my view. I could be wrong. It's an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. News 24, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> News Never, they should call themselves News Never. Now, they do a good job breaking stories, but then they, they get Melanie Favre and others on there, and they tell these fairy tale stories about South Africans, you know, 
And then they wake up 20 years later after the country's in ruins going, oh, not you too, Cyril. A2, Cyril. You know, come on. Anyway, um, that's not to say there isn't news there. That's not to say there isn't something worth listening to. And it's always helpful to listen to people who have different views, especially if you don't agree with them. That's why I used to read The Economist. I had a subscription to The Economist for it. If anybody in this room says they weren't born, I don't want to hear it. You have to leave right now. But I had a subscription to The Economist that I loved it so much that when I was in London in 1992, I went to their headquarters to renew my subscription. And that's when I found out you can write a check from the U.S. and the U.K. We have the same system for check. Anyway, not important. But because they let me take a check. They wouldn't take credit cards. So I, I, I renew my subscription. That's how much. And I read it from cover to cover. I liked the British survey, the U.K. survey, the American survey. It was a view of America from outside in the English-speaking world. And their criticisms or analysis was interesting to me. But I read it because lots of things in The Economist I didn't agree with. But it was someone else's view. So it's good to hear other people's views that you don't agree with. But the people will go, oh, I'm not listening to that person. Now, there are exceptions. I, I don't spend much time listening to Julius Malayman. I'll be honest about that. So there are exceptions. But listening to different opinions uh, is, is, I think, a productive thing. And, and you can learn from it. Uh, you can also see how people are being disingenuous and dishonest with you. So did I answer your question? Nice. You're very welcome. Another question. Uh, go with Jack, and then we'll come back this way. Jack. Well, first of all, thank you for your, your insights into, into our country. Um, you mentioned earlier that the instant war, the uprising that we saw in president. The chaos we saw last year. Yeah, exactly. Hey, now you're safe. Which, I'm an American. <laughs> what are you going to do to me? Put me on Robin Island? It's a tourist site. Let's, uh, let's use that word insurrection. Okay. Um, from, from your military perspective, you mentioned that these tensions might be sitting underneath the surface and there are different factions at play here. What sort of timeline would you give uh, from your experience before you, we might see something like this happen again? Mm. And when do you think the tipping point might come where there's no uh, return back to the old South Africa that we once knew? Well, um, without informants and access to criminal intelligence, things like that, um, my analysis is simply based on information I'm aware of publicly and my experience. And so let me just you know throw that disclaimer out there. Uh, first off, um, if there's going to be trouble, I suspect we may see trouble after the ANC's party conference in December. All right? There is a war inside the ANC. It's a war. It's as simple as that. The ANC, in my view, is dead man walking. You know, the Democratic Alliance, and this is one of the issues I have with them, is fond of saying the ANC was brought below 50% in municipal elections 2021. That's nonsense. They weren't brought below 50%. There are 39 million eligible voters in South Africa. They got 13% of the votes, not 46%. That's the true figure. The rest of your parties can go out and fight for those other votes, get those people to get off their bomb and go to the poll. Because they didn't go vote for the ANC. In KwaZulu-Natal, the Inkata Freedom Party, people are saying, hey, they did a great job. Look at how they did a great job. They did okay. I interviewed President Habisa from the IFP. Uh, and we talked before the election. I interviewed 40 candidates across South Africa from eight different political parties, including leaders of four different political parties. Now, I never attempted to contact EFF. I tried the ANC, but they're afraid to come on my channel. But um, I, I, I challenge you to find another news organization, and I'm not really, it's just me, I'm the news organization, that, that put that much effort into South Africa's election. And by the way, I started encouraging South Africans to vote in June of 2020, not, not three months before the election like most political parties did. Anyway, in KwaZulu-Natal, the Inkata Freedom Party gained 2% of the vote nationally. So they gained more than But here's what happened. And this is what I said to people about the election, that they should vote for a party, a minority party that has an opportunity to get a majority someplace. After the 2016 elections, the IFP controlled 11 municipalities in Kwasin and Tel. 
There's 43, if I'm not mistaken. Today, because the ANC imploded in Quasi Intel after their failed governance and their insurrection last year, the November election, the ANC has fallen so low that the IFP, despite gaining almost no voters, now controls 30 of the 40 municipalities outright through a majority coalition or a minority coalition. 30 of the 43 municipalities. Now, if the IP is serious about governance, they have a rare opportunity to show the voters in Quasi-Natal that if you're transparent, if you're honest, you give service delivery, you can make a difference. I'm getting away from your topic, Jack. We'll get back to this thing. So uh, anyway, but um, wow. So if anything's going to happen, I don't think it's going to happen major until Tempisa aside, that was a, that was a, that's an outlier. I think that was politically motivated to embarrass the DA mayor up there. That's what I think that was about. I could be wrong. Um, I mean, you don't burn down the police station if you're unhappy about a mayor not showing up. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. But by the same token, you don't cut down power lines with axes in Richards Bay because you don't have power. Well, now when are you going to get power? You know how many power? There's no poles out delivering. Anyway, so if anything's going to happen, in my view, it'll happen around or after that conference, depending on what happens with Jacobs. Oh, no, Jacobs. Sorry. Ooh. With Cyril Ramaphosa. Sorry, I can't tell the difference. Anyway, between uh, with Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, and what happens, now remember, I call it the Polokwane Massacre. That's a sarcastic term. The Polokwane Massacre when Tabo Mbeki was unseated as the president of the African National Congress. And what did he do shortly after that? Just like Jacob Zimmer, resigned as the president of South Africa. Now as a foreigner, looking at South African politics, I'm like, wait a second. Your party doesn't like you, so you're no longer the president of the country? What comes first, party or people? Not in South Africa, it's, it's the party comes first. Utility House comes first. The loyalty to the party is what matters. So I think that's, Jack, if it's going to happen, that's when it's probably going to happen. But it could happen at any time. Look, okay, a lot of people will tell you that, that crime is a result of poverty. By and large, I'll tell you that's nonsense. In my experience, having lived in eight African countries, grown up in rural Appalachia, I never stole from anybody. I went days without eating food when I was a kid. I went two or three days without food. We had milk and water, but milk is not food. You know? We didn't have food. I didn't have things. I didn't steal from people. Poor people don't steal. Thieves steal. Now, poor people are desperate, starving. That's a different story. If you're dying of starvation, you may steal food or something like that. But the people who do smash and grabs, the people who break in your homes, they're not poor. They've stolen people's goods. They've got those things. They're criminals. And that's, that's the, you know, the point of that story is that we hear that, you know, poverty will cause an insurrection. The insurrection last year wasn't caused by poverty. There were... Demonstrably fewer poor black South Africans in 1994 than are today, or tens of millions more who live in abject poverty, courtesy of the failed macroeconomic policies of the African National Congress and other things, including theft and rampant corruption. No one was burning down crematoriums and ransacking radio stations before July of last year. That all was precipitated by a fight inside the ANC. And that's what's coming next. The ANC is imploding. And will it break, you know, the ANC has already broken into two different parties in the past. First was the formation of COPE, which is now just, you know, it's a historical error. They just booted the terror of the code out of COPE, by the way. Did you hear about that? The founder of the party, they kicked him out because he's not corrupt. So they don't want him. I don't know. That's, they kicked him out. I'm going to interview him soon, so maybe he can tell me why. Anyway, um, and then, um, of course, you know, the armed wing, uh, not in Kuntulisi's way, but the armed wing of the ANC in the 21st century is the EFF. That's what they are. I mean, look at Brockenfeld. They, they, some idiot judge here in the Western Cape gave the approval to go harass students in a high school with 100 demonstrators. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, you want to protest, protest away from the school, don't threaten children. But they let them do it, the judge. And they show up with 3,500, 4,000 
people marching in impi formation with pangas, knob carries, and golf clubs. But it's just a peaceful gathering. Why do you have machetes, pangas, and knob carries, wooden sticks, and golf clubs? And why do you march on the police, rush at them? Well, of course, like cockroaches, we saw what happened when the water cannons got turned on. They ran away. And then they ransacked, you know, car dealerships, destroying cars. Such a peaceful gathering. Anyway, the point of the story is that, um, anyway, I don't want to go that story anymore. We'll stop there. But, uh, Jack, I think that, um, that there's a potential. I'm not predicting that that's going to happen again, but there's a serious problem inside the African National Congress beyond corruption, beyond incompetence. Uh, we could have fun with that. Uh, by the way, I have some nicknames for some of your ministers if you want to hear them. So you have the Minister of Injustice, Ronnie Lamola. You have Minister of uh, Irrational Affairs and Non-Traditional Governance. That's uh, in close design of Zuma. And you have Minister of No Trade, Ibrahim Patel. So I just like to give him nicknames. So anyway, uh, did I answer your question? Okay, the, this gentleman behind you. I haven't forgot you over here, man. Now we're over here. So. Um, I have a question on your opinion. Is cap independence a good idea? And then, if so, would you say the same to the United States? If states were to become independent, would that be a good thing? Okay, let me address the states in the first one, okay? And then I'll come back to the case, because I should know best as an American better. Um, we tried this. We had a secession movement, and we had a civil war as a consequence. There's no provision that I'm aware of in our Constitution that allows for secession in our Constitution. That was not envisioned. Um, it's unclear. And so that effort was made over the issue of slavery and states' rights um, not wanting to be dictated by a central government. At the time it happened, our central government was weak was not particularly powerful like it is today. Today it's so powerful and so overwhelming that it really has an impact. Um, I don't think it's a good idea for American states, like people in Texas are talking about secession. I think it's a foolhardy notion for America. I can go from Alaska to Hawaii to Delaware to Texas, and everybody speaks English. And we may have different appearances and skin color and some different faiths, but we're all Americans. And, and that's the overriding factor for everyone, by and large. It's a nation. It's been built into a nation, a single nation, with different ethnicity, but a single nation. South Africa, many people argue, is a nation uh, full of separate nations. And there's merit to that argument, I think. Um, as far as um, your question, was it a good idea? Well, I can't answer that for Cape Tonians or for Western Capers or for, that's not a word, Western Capers, <laughs> but for folks in Western Cape or for South Africa. But I can say that it's, it's legitimate, it's legal, it's possible. Uh, under international norms, international law, and recognized treaty. It's been done before. Dr. Hammond and I were talking earlier. I mentioned the case of the Velvet Divorce of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia broke into two countries. They're peaceful neighbors. They get along. There are Czechs living in Slovakia, Slovaks living in, in, in Czech Republic. Uh, and then I also, we, we talked about South Sudan, uh, although that's not the best one because it's been a bloody situation. Most people can't govern themselves at all, the South Sudanese. But there's lots of examples of it having happened in the past. So it's feasible. It's, it's a good idea if you live here and, and, and you're tired of all your money going to Pretoria by people making decisions here in Cape Town and Parliament and very little of it coming back to you here. And you're frustrated by being ruled by people that don't respond to you. Then it's probably a good idea for you. Um, and I th and that's probably the best answer I've given that. But it's feasible. I think it's practical, too. So did I answer your question? Okay. And just before you get to later, there's a gentleman over here somewhere. So, yes. Okay. Uh, I'll go to one, I see that the Democratic Party is almost like the ANC here, imploding on itself. Antifa was the EFF in the States. Okay. 
And my question then is, this, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights say that the government, the, your, your Fed, do not control everything that goes back to states. Why does the Fed control your oil? Can states not produce, uh, produce their own oil without relying on the Fed, on the, on the actual central government? And then two, can states dictate to the senators and the congressmen to put in terms from the states? To do what? To determinants from the states. Can the states dictate to the to their senators and the congressmen if they could put in terminants for themselves or else to say that if the senator, the congressman or the senator do not vote in line with the population of the of the representative of the people they represent, can they recall them at any time? Could that be possible? No, the constitution doesn't allow for that. Um, members of the Senate um, and the House can be censored by those bodies themselves. It's not an ideal situation. So, um, yeah, um, they can uh, they can be impeached as well, and uh, not in the House, but in the Senate, if I'm not mistaken. But no, there, there's no mechanism like that. And and frankly, the states shouldn't have that authority because the people vote for the representatives, and the people have an option, and that's to vote them out the next time. Unlike in South Africa, where you vote for a party list and get stuck with the clowns they give you, but in states, you vote for the person. So um, that's so. Your first question was um, sorry again. Uh, the Democrats. States. Well, Democrats. I just that was just a comment. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay, just simple observation. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, like, can the state want to control their own resources? So if the state. Oh, that's what you're talking about oil. Yeah. Okay. In order for me to ask that question, I have to understand what you mean. What do you mean by this? The federal government controls uh, the oil. Closing the pipelines. Closing. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, okay, yeah, okay. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the, the federal government doesn't control oil production, uh, but it can set regulations that prevent things, and it can put <laughs> unconstitutional, illegal executive orders. That's where you're going. So let me just talk very quickly about that. I think we're talking about things like the Keystone XL pipeline. So the Keystone XL pipeline was a project designed to bring oil from the. Uh, my Canadian viewers don't like it when I say tar sands. Oil sands. <laughs> the oil sands in Alberta, one of the world's largest deposits of, of petroleum, but it's in thick bitumen and you have to process it. It takes a lot of energy to process it, but it's viable. Um, also, it's funny because the environmentalists freak out. Oh, you're polluting the environment. Uh, what, do you, what do you think was laying on the ground there? This stuff is bubbling up. It's uh, Nature's polluting the environment. They're cleaning it up, actually. We ought to thank them for doing it. Anyway, um, the Tar Sands Project, or the, the Keystone XL Pipeline Project, uh, Obama was president and he illegitimately, in my mind, immorally used his power as chief executive to issue an executive order. Now, executive orders, which is confusing for Americans, not just for people around the world, only apply to the executive branch. So the president only has authority over the people that work in the executive branch. So that would be most of the federal government. So that's going to be the military, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Coast Guard, the Department of Justice, the FBI. Those, he can order them to do things legally because he has authority. But he can't issue an executive order that has anything to do with the private citizen. There's no authority over that. That's governed by laws written by Congress and signed by the president. The president can't just issue an order. I think Americans must go get the jab. He can't do that. It's unconstitutional. He tried that recently and was struck down. Anyway, um, the Keystone XL pipeline, Obama used the excuse that, well, this is national security. It crosses international borders, and I'm the commander-in-chief, which technically is true. He does have responsibility for the border. You wouldn't know with Biden because there's no security on the southern border. But uh, he does have responsibility for international borders, and that is a national security issue potentially. So he directed the State Department to do a study. The State Department did a study for two years. They came back and they said, there are no threats. In fact, this would be great for America's economy. It'll, call, it'll create this many jobs. It'll reduce our dependence on foreign. This is before we had fracking. We became the world's largest oil producer, uh, which we were under Trump. The world's largest. We produced more oil per day than Saudi Arabia. 
We haven't done that since the 1960s. So we were producing over 12 million barrels, 13 million barrels a day of oil from the United States because of fracking, type, shale oil, and just regular production and offshore. Uh, but that's all gone down the tubes now too. We're now importing oil for no reason anyway. But the point is that um, he used that excuse. And then once the State Department said there's no problem, he just ignored their report and left his executive uh, order in place, which was unconstitutional, banning the creation of pipeline. So that's illegal. And unfortunately, nobody took him to court and challenged him. But every time Donald Trump made a decision, they took him to court and said he can't do it. Uh, the funny thing about Donald Trump is that every time he was challenged in court, he ceased and desisted the operations, whatever his order was. Obeyed, with the, obeyed the courts, and then when the courts ruled in his favor, which they were going to do because he was right, then he carried on. Joe Biden violates our Constitution on a daily basis by making up nonsense and signing executive orders which are illegal, knowing that they'll be overturned by the court, like the jab one for employees. Every company that has an employee, about 100 employees, that's unconstitutional. They use the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to issue a directive saying that any employer with 100 employees must have everybody jabbed. There's no authority in the federal government to do that. No law that says it, it violates the Constitution. And they knew that. But they knew that people needed to feed their children and pay their mortgages, and that if they put that rule in effect, that millions of Americans would get against their religious convictions, their moral objections, and their concerns about it. And that's what they did. And 20, 30 million people got it that didn't want it. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's lawlessness, and that's what we have. That's, that's the immorality that's happening now. And it's not being challenged fast enough. Now, that was challenged, but it took four months to get to the court and throw it out. So I hope I answered your question, and this lady here. Uh, you say the radio too much trouble. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. That's okay. Uh, you said the Oh, we're heading towards trouble. And I completely agree with you. I think you have to be asleep not to see that. But Many trouble, people are. Yes, it's very frightening. What is the scale of trouble that you think that we're heading towards? And secondly, with all the illegal aliens that are streaming through the southern border, are you expecting a, a significant population shift in America or at least in Texas? Well, we've seen a significant population shift in America. And let, and let me answer that first, then come back to your first question. So, in 1965, I think it was. Um, Congress passed immigration reform, and uh, Ted Kennedy was behind it, and one of the reasons they wanted to let more Irish into America, and it created the visa lottery system, you know, people just pick a number out, Ooh, you have no skills, but you're welcome to come in now. Um, when that bill went to Congress, who do you think was sitting in Congress in 1965? Women? Black folks? Hispanics? Asians? Mostly a bunch of old white dudes, right? 1965. That's not a criticism, it's a statement of fact, right? So if we're a systemically racist society, why do all these old white dudes let all these people of color come streaming in our country? When they made that decision, America was 89% white. Today it's 76% white. Now they'll lie to you and tell you we're 53% white. That's because they don't include Hispanics. The vast majority of Hispanics consider themselves to be white. And if we consider Arabs to be white, then we should consider Hispanics to be white too. By law, Arabs in America are considered white. Dinesh D'Souza, as an Indian, is considered white. By law. And that's how he's categorized. I mean, it's just, anyway, that's just because he's Caucasian. Anyway, so anyway, um, but he's got a very nice tan. You know, Dinesh this is. Brilliant guy, by the way. Brilliant guy. And a great example of an immigrant to America. So these old white guys who were systemically racist gave us a country that's much more diverse, diverse today and get no credit for it. Think about that. So that's the first thing. Um, that your question was about um, the, the, the potential coming danger. How bad do I think it'll be? All right, I, I don't know. I can't predict that. I, I don't have the intelligence, but I can tell you this. This is frightening. Before they started looting and burning game and macro and all that stuff in KZN, 
They were breaking in those stores the night before in Sportsman's Warehouse and place like that. Do you know what they took? Sleeping bags, tents, camping gear. Now, why would you loot that stuff unless you have an intent to use it in a fashion that, I mean, are they all going to go to the beach? Are they all going to Kruger? I haven't seen any people stole that stuff show up at Kruger yet. What I'm trying to say to you is that there are potentially some people in this country who have stockpiled resources cause chaos. We don't know how many, we don't know who they are. Somebody does. I don't. I just know that what I just said is factually true. And it's a bit concerning. Also, ask yourself this question. This, look, I don't like conspiracy theories, but boy, the conspiracy theories have been proven correct so many times in the last five years. But just, let's just, let's put ourselves in a pretend world, okay? All right? So we're in a pretend world, and the pretend world is the following. Okay, so Jacob Zuma has found a contempt of court. So we don't tell the police to prepare. We don't tell them to rehearse. We don't tell them to preposition equipment and water cannons. We don't tell them to have bullets on hand, rubber and lethal ones. We don't tell them to coordinate with the military. Or we don't tell them anything. They just, it all falls apart. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible the same government that can put more government informants inside the Burmog and break up the Burmog and put people in jail forever because they're terrified of the Burmog? A couple dozen people who had evil intent. And, you know, but they can't identify this threat. Something's not right there. Back to the critical thinking thing here. And here's the other piece of this. Why do you destroy four radio stations in the midst of looting and steal the transmitting equipment? All the transmitting equipment was stolen from radio stations. For what? Are you going home and setting up your own radio station? Hey, hello, it's Chaos FM. We're right here in Howick, and we just stole this radio transmitter. Why do you torture crematorium? What, 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 what do you loot from a crematorium? Bones? Dust? Why do you sabotage a water supply? Poison it. Now, I'm not trying to make conspiracy theories, but that's not just looting. That's not poor people who are taking advantage of a crisis. Yeah, there were 100,000 thieves who took advantage of the fact the game was wide open and the cops, you know, it reminded me of that, uh, that movie with, um, uh, with uh, Bruce Willis, you know, the, the, what's the one? He, he does the Nakatomi Towers. That's the first one. Then he does this. What's it called? Die Hard, yeah. The Die Hard when they're in New York, right? And he, this kid's running down the street with all his candy bars, and he grabs and goes, what are you doing, man? You want to go to juvie? Juvenile Hall? Hey, man, the cops are into something. There's no cops here. That's what that looked like, didn't it? Where are the cops at? Now, I'm not picking on the police, okay? They're hard-serving. They're people who serve, serve the country and serve people very well in the police, but they're under-resourced. They're politically controlled, and they're not effective in many respects. But the bottom line is, look at what happened. If it wasn't for people in communities defending themselves, and protecting each other, it would have been a lot worse than it was. As far as we know, 354 people were killed. The figure's probably a lot higher than that. We'll probably never know. Anyway, um, and then look, look at the incompetence that comes right on the heels of that. The floods in KZN. What the heck? Storage drains not cleaned out for de decades. People not relocated from dangerous areas where they're sitting in floodplains. And then Jan van Riebeck's to blame? Yon was never in KZN. He was in the Cape and Batavia. He never stopped in KZN. Oh, maybe he did. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> so, look. Um, how bad can it get? I'd be very concerned. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm just saying, think about all the stuff that's happening. Uh, there's a group of people out there called preppers. You know, they prep for, for different things. I'm not a prepper, but when, 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 when the pandemic started, people were buying toilet paper and freaking out. I walked in my basement. Went to the shelf, toilet paper. Oh, paper towels. Oh, 
Hand sanitizer. Oh, my beans. Go back to base my beans. I have all that stuff. I'm not a prepper. I'm just a prudent person who plans for the future. Um, and it's the same like on this trip. I have backup plans for almost everything on this trip. <laughs> some have worked, some haven't. But my rainbow rescue saved me. So, anyway, I hope I answered your question. Yes, sir. ISIS prisons in southern Mozambique, northern Ecuador. ISIS prisons in southern Mozambique. I have no evidence that that exists. Oh, presence! I thought you said prisons. Okay. Okay. Oh, man, I never heard of the prisons. Sorry, presence. I I didn't hear you. The sound. The presence. Okay. First off, I don't believe for even a moment that what's happening in Mozambique. You said southern Mozambique. Northern Mozambique. Yeah. Okay. So I said southern. Uh, I don't think for a moment that what's happening in North Mozambique has anything to do with ISIS. I think it's a false attribution, a false claim. I have no evidence to indicate that it's the case. Um, groups oftentimes make declarations that they're allied with these groups to get attention. Uh, in fact, that group is also been called Boko Haram um, because they know that that phrase has currency and people will be afraid of it. In my view, which could be wholly wrong, but based on my experience and also the fact that I was an intelligence analyst covering Mozambique for a number of years, and also a desk officer responsible and a team chief responsible for, for, for security assistance there. What's happening in northern Mozambique is a, a consequence of a, a, a gap in governance, which dates back to even when the Portuguese were there. They never fully controlled Cabo Delgado, they never even tried to, it's so remote. And there's virtually no development there over the years, and that's one reason why things are the way they are. And I think a group of ghouls and criminals and brigands has taken advantage of that and labeled themselves something, and they have caused carnage and displaced a million people. And, and that's because the FATM, the Mozambican forces, are not focused on protecting citizens. They were protecting Total's natural gas facility on shore. And um, even if they were defending, they're not particularly effective. Um, they haven't been effective. Um, this, this is what Dr. Ham and I talked earlier when we were uh, recording the broadcast about Sierra Leone. And the Brits went in there after a brutal, horrific civil war. And in three weeks, the war ended. Professional soldiers came and ended the war. I told people forever that uh, in Liberia, the place that I went to rebuild the army after the Civil War, that in Liberia that I could take a reinforced Marine rifle platoon from the U.S. Marines and end that war in three days. I was embellishing, but I could end it three weeks, just like the Brits did. Uh, the problem is that the people that are killing people aren't professional. And you got idiots running around half naked, pointing guns like this, like they're in a gangster movie, shooting wildly. Um, yeah, it's, um, I don't believe that they're tied to ISIS. There are a huge danger. I have heard people talk, and I've seen no evidence of it yet, doesn't mean it's not true, that these groups are also trying to operate around Swaziland and northern uh, KZN. I have no information on it. If you do, if we could talk offline, I'd, I'd be interested to find out, but I have no information to confirm it. Um, but that's my assessment of what's going on in Mozambique. And by the way, I predicted this in 2017 when they started killing people, and the world ignored it. Now, in 2017, I wasn't online, I wasn't broadcasting, I was still an intelligence officer serving the government, so that's not something I could share with you all. But that was my prediction in 2017. I also predicted the piracy that took place years before that. Doesn't make me brilliant. It just means that I was paying attention when the rest of the world's not. So, that's your question? Yeah. Yes, sir. Another question. Is that it? Oh, come on. You can't let me out here this easy. All right. Dr. Hammond. Considering what's going on in Ukraine, do you want to give us some insights into this insanity that's brewing in Europe right now? Okay. Woo, okay, uh, still got some, some space on the hard drive over here. Okay, all right, Ukraine. Um, so let me point out a few things about Ukraine, okay? And I know you want me to go with this, and I'm going to get there. So um, Joe Biden becomes president of the United States. Nine days later, does anybody know what happened? Nine days after he became president, the 1st of February. 
Myanmar's military overthrew its democratically elected government. A corrupt government, but a democratically elected government. Military junta. They imprisoned the 76-year-old Nobel Prize, Peace Prize winning President An Yong Sung Kim, 76 years old, in prison and charged her with all kinds of crimes. They have since banned opposition parties. They have executed people who served in opposition parties recently. They have gone on a campaign murdering people throughout the country, and they have violated all international norms. On February 1st last year, what did Joe Biden say about Myanmar? Did anybody remember? Nothing. That's right. I don't remember because he didn't say anything. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. It's like the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Okay. So uh, the joke goes better in America because they know the show. Anyway. Sorry, I tried. Anyway, I'll tell you a good joke before we're done here. You'll like it. Anyway, just remind me. It's a Cape Town joke. You'll think you'll like it. Nothing to do with Cape Town, just happened here. Anyway, so um, does anybody know when Vladimir Putin first moved troops to the border of Ukraine during Joe Biden's administration? Six weeks. March. Six weeks. Thank you. Well, this, this guy switched on. He knows what we're talking about. Six weeks after Biden became president, Putin moved 70,000 troops to the border with Ukraine. Now, if you're all honest, you know, one of my favorite phrases in South Africa is, if I'm honest, what else would you be? <laughs> if I'm honest, I mean, if you're all honest, how many of you knew that? That gentleman knew that. No one else knew that, right? Right? That's, just, that's, that's not bad, but that's just the point. What did Joe Biden say? Nothing. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hammond. Nothing. He said nothing. We had five coups, six coup attempts in West Africa last year. Which of them did Joe Biden comment on? Thank you. In August of last year, 18 months after the U.S. last engaged in combat operations in Afghanistan, 18 months after our last combat, after, Joe Biden lied to the world and said America's tired of the war in Afghanistan. But we weren't fighting war in Afghanistan. Oh, you're going you're to correct me. Chris, you had troops here. Yes, we did. 5,000 troops. What were they doing? They were doing security assistance, something I spent much of my career doing in Africa, training the Afghan forces to be an army that resembles the American army because that's what our idiots in Congress wanted and gave them $100 billion worth of military hardware. By the way, let me just, just, let me just squash something right now. Afghanistan, we didn't leave military equipment behind. That's the story you hear. And, 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 and you can't attack Joe Biden for that because he didn't do that. The helicopters, the tanks, the artillery that was left in Afghanistan, it's theirs. Our Congress allocated $100 billion over two decades to buy that equipment to build an army that looks like an American army when they should have been given AK-47s and sticks and stones and, you know, camels. <laughs> so we gave them that. It's their equipment. So I just wanted to spell that because a lot of Americans are upset we left us. It wasn't our equipment. Just like South Vietnam. We equipped them with M60 tanks. We gave them everything. And then they all surrendered to the North Vietnamese when they came through. So um, Afghanistan. Joe Biden tells America and the world that we are tired of combat. But we're not in combat. So what does he do? He turns and flees from Afghanistan. So what does this do to someone like Vladimir Putin who's had his eyes on Ukraine and wants a compliant vassal state? Yellow Russia, which is white Russia, which is right next to um, Ukraine, just above it, will do anything that Vladimir Putin tells them to do. They're just a client state. They're, 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 they're under their suzerainty, essentially. That's what he wanted from Ukraine. But, you know, the comedian slash president, uh, Zelensky, didn't want to play ball. And that's fine. Ukraine's an independent country. You don't have to play ball with a bully like Russia. But when you have somebody like Joe Biden in the White House, there's an opportunity here. And so in my view, Joe Biden didn't start talking. Well, not in my view. This is factual. He didn't start talking seriously to the public about Ukraine until December of last year. 
Now, what happened in December last year? Joe Biden's popularity in the polls dropped to 38%. And suddenly, somebody told him to start talking about Ukraine, because you know he didn't start thinking about it. <laughs> start talking about Ukraine. And he did. And suddenly, Ukraine, 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 like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And suddenly, it's the story. And then he hyped up the whole thing. Essentially, and I think Dr. Hammond and I agree on this portion, um, if not all of it, Ukraine is a proxy war for NATO and the United States. Why? I think it's to distract from what's happening. The theft of our liberty, the debt that we're being buried under, the crisis that we're being put into by world leaders, all the things, the pandemic, suspension, all the things that happened to people talking about Ukraine. But even that doesn't work. It's six months later. Is anybody paying attention to Ukraine other than Ukrainians? Not really. They just went on offensive. They're pushing the Russians back down south towards the Crimea. Did you know that? Did the press tell you that? They're not focused on it. But then we all got little stickers. I'm with Ukraine. They're blue and gold. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so let me put this in perspective for you one other way. I'm not a fan of the Right. You can you can you can help someone in it, okay? You know, teach a man to fish. I'm, I'm good with that. You know, so they give him fish, but but in an emergency, you can give a man fish because there isn't time to teach him to fish. He's starving. Uh, you know, help your neighbor. I got it. Compassion is a, is a Christian thing. I got. It. I'm all in favor of that. But aid creates dependency, just like sassafras. You get someone else. You get someone else's money. Why would you want to work? Not that a sassafras makes anybody survive. I and mean, it's a joke. 350 rand is a joke. But the point is. Um, but this is important to understand the context of Ukraine. We, we give assistance to Ukraine all the time, you know, uh, some economic assistance, some security assistance in the past, even though they're not allies. In Sub-Saharan Africa in 2019, it was 2019, the United States gave all of the top 10 recipient countries. That's Nigeria, South Africa, Ethiopia, Liberia, and a few other countries. But the top 10 recipients out of all the Sub-Saharan countries in Africa, we gave them $8.7 billion in total aid. That's a lot of money. But wait for it. $8.7 billion. Now that includes security assistance, training soldiers, buying equipment, uh, supporting peacekeeping operations. Uh, that includes economic assistance to develop the Southern African Regional Trading Hub. That includes uh, health assistance for HIV, antiretrovirals, the PEPFAR program, the President Bush created. Um, all of that, $8.7 billion. The supplemental bill in June, that the president asked for Ukraine included $8.9 billion in economic aid for Ukraine. Yet the 10 largest countries in Africa with over 450 million people, almost 500 million people in 2019, got 200 million less than what Ukraine is getting in a supplemental package. Now, if you have empathy for Ukraine, let me just ask this question. Why in the world would you give money to a country to support their economy when it's being bombed into the Stone Age? What are we helping with? Oh, here, let's help. Oh, that just got destroyed yesterday by artillery. I guess we need more money now. $8.9 billion. So the 450, 500 million Africans matter less than 42 million Ukrainians? I, I'm, I'm not making a judgment here. I'm just pointing out the facts. So what's going on in Ukraine? Why, why is the war being fueled? Good question. I think it's a distraction. I think it's a distract what's actually happening. Yes, Did I answer Dr. Harris' question? Yeah. Okay. A comment on Ukraine. Yes. I think it's my email address. So straight, straight, easy, simple. Yeah. You see a George S. who was there in Brinkley, Brinkley, in Brinkley, and yet Vlad, yes, who thinks that the that they were involved, and it's just pure money laundering. It's the simplest way to get 
money out of the US into private hands to the civil system. Because if you, if you think one year, like one year, America's given them like what, 64? Almost 70 billion dollars now. When you include the original allocation, yeah. Well, in Afghanistan, like you've spent, you spend maybe 100 billion? Uh, well, that's just on the defense force, 100 billion, not the economic systems, yeah. over 20 years, yeah. 20 years, it's ridiculous. The only logical thing is money. Well, it's uh, the irony. Here's the irony with Ukraine. So, Vladimir Putin made one of the excuses why he was angry at Ukraine is he didn't want NATO expansion. Well, now Finland and Sweden are brought into the arms of NATO. NATO is expanding because of his attack. Isn't that ironic? Finland, we have a whole verb for that in English, Finlandization. The neutrality of a country, the force of neutrality, so that it doesn't, doesn't, you know, doesn't become swallowed up by its neighbors. Finland is an example of that. That's something we've, my entire life, that's a word I learned because of Finland. The history. Uh, Finland um, was attacked by the Soviets in 1939, and they just obliterated the Soviets until the weather changed, and then they, they were outnumbered. And they, they got a peace because Stalin had enough, and he was getting ready for the Germans to attack, for him to attack Germany. And then they joined the Nazis, and they fought against uh, the Wehrmacht, they fought against the Russians again, the Soviets, and um, that war was lost, the Germans retreated, but the, the Finns held their own, and they became neutralized. In fact, one of the conditions of Finlandization was that the Finnish government was required to try the wartime leaders as treasonous leaders, and they were in prison. The former prime minister, president, all the people in the country, all the key leaders were put in jail. This house arrest, but uh, it was just uh, all to placate the Soviets. But it was part of Finlandization. Anyway, so um, yeah, the irony is that now Finland and Sweden want to join NATO and are about to join NATO. Talk about irony of all ironies. Finland has been neutral since since the Second World War. Not anymore. Anyway, so all right. Another question? Have we reached apogee here? All right. Sorry? Okay. Well, all right. Well, then, then maybe I should just wrap up, Dr. Hammond. Okay? Sure. Uh, sure. No, I'll take any questions. My favorite color is purple. <laughs> it is. Making that up. Why would I make that up? If I said it was pink, you might question me that. But I actually like pink, too. It used to be green, but after 36 years in the Army, green is not my favorite color. Just saying. Anyway, um, yeah, so um, by the way, uh, so you mentioned uh, earlier, so I'll tell you about the, um, the Somerset West thing real quickly here. Yes, uh, so on the 12th of September, if you're interested, I think you actually have to pay, but it's like 150 rand or something like that. But I don't get anything, so don't worry, it's not, there's nothing coming out of the table for me. Uh, but on the 12th of September um, in Somerset West, there's a, there's a panel discussion, and uh, Donald Brown and World View are hosting this. And the panel members include Dr. Kenneth Mishway from the African Christian Democratic Party. Dr. Peter Krenovan from the Free Front Plus, uh, and now Apple Trollope, um, not from the DA, but from Action SA these days, and myself. And we'll be talking about the future of South Africa. As I've told folks earlier, you know, I think it'll be the one night I get some rest because the future of South Africa would be pretty easy. Good night. No, just, <laughs> anyway. But uh, yeah, so that panel discussion is taking place there. I don't know if it's being broadcast. I haven't checked in on that. I've been so busy from one place to another. Uh, I should tell you before I go. <laughs> So let me give you an idea of, of what this trip has been like for me. Um, it was about paying it back to my audience and visiting as many people in South Africa as I could who've, who've been loyal to my program, who followed me, and who spread the word about you know, the message I'm trying to get out there, which is a message, uh, I don't want to say it's a message of hope, but I am hopeful, but it's a message of truth, and, and, and I want people to think critically and, and challenge things when they should be challenged and you know, stand up for what's right, and that's what I've been trying to do. But um, let me give you an idea of what one of my days was to get a feel for this, how this trip was. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in uh, northwest of a tobacco farm in the morning with a friend of mine, Hermann Roos. And um, I got up in the morning, had breakfast there, and then I drove to Victoria, and I had breakfast with Bantu Holomisa from the UDF. After Bantu Holomisa, 
I um, went to Hammanskral, and then at Hammanskral I visited. Did I tell you the story? No, okay. I guess I've told these stories so many times I get confused. What I said. Went to Hammanskral, and there's an orphanage and children's school there, which is right next to an informal settlement. It's sponsored by American Evangelicals and Baptists, and so they asked me to go check it out, and I did. And I saw this place. Then I went back to Pretoria, and I was at the Union Buildings. And the Union Buildings, I met up with Kali Rue and Fatima Abdul. She's from the UIM, Neil DeBeer's party. And she used to be a Sophie star, if you remember that far back. She was on soaps back in the day in South Africa. So Fatima Abdul and I, I saw her. That's the first time I met her in person. I've known her for a long time. And then Kali Rue, who helps me get connected with the farming community. So they introduced me to the Khoisan kids. At who's camped out there next to the Union Buildings. So I interviewed him for about a half hour, and I swear that afterwards I felt a little funny. Um, they say they grow the there, you know, the, the Mar- you know, when people's all anyway. So I felt a little funny when I left. It was a little lightheaded, but anyway. But I interviewed the Khoisan, Khoisan King for half an hour. It was a fantastic conversation, and then uh, which was also interesting because he's aware of the woman uh, Katrina Esau, who is the last first language speaker of, of the. Or the sign language new, and um, I've been trying to promote that language before it dies out. And I have been able to reach her granddaughter who's trying to save language too. But anyway, he knows them, so maybe I'll be able to reach out to them. So from there, I went to and had a lekka bai with Steve Hofmeyer at his house. So from Bantu Holomisa to Steve Hofmeyer, all in the same day. And that's kind of how my tour is done. And on this tour, I've been very fortunate to write into musicians whom I know and others. Steve Hofmeyer, of course, uh, Monty Jackson. I saw Monty at his place and went to a bride where he introduced me to Donnie Van der Westhuizen, who I found out watches my program. I had no idea. Uh, Donnie was recently at the Bitcoin Monument uh, for the ceremony this past Saturday. Normally I broadcast that, but I was traveling this time, so I couldn't do it. And also Giselle, who's a favorite of mine. She's from Fontaine in Namibia, and um, she sung the song Sud Saitas. You may have heard that song. Uh, she's sung many other songs, so I kind of help, uh, help her with promoting her music. Saw her down here in Cape Town because they were at the concert in the, in the West Coast. And then um, there's one more. Oh, Trevor Donjane. Trevor Donjane is a friend of mine. He lives in Durban. Trevor was Johnny Clegg's bass player. So, so my viewers, politicians, South Africans, um, it's been a really incredible experience. And I'm glad I was able to get back here. It's been four years since I've been in South Africa, but I've been here hundreds of times previously. But I never had friends in South Africa. <laughs> uh, this tour has really made me feel at home. I felt like family with so many people. And it's been absolutely incredible. I'm so grateful for the experience. And I hope that, I, I know that my viewers know that I did everything I possibly could to see as many people and go as many places as I could. I've been to seven of the nine provinces in the past month. And I've given presentations like this. I've answered questions. I've met with my viewers. I've done interviews. I've, I've given interviews. Um, and I'd like to say that um, I've seen the good, the bad, and some of the ugly South Africa. I've been a victim of load shedding <laughs> three times, which is a lot less than I expected. Um, twice in PE, hmm, uh, the night before, the next morning, and then in the Mahalisburg of all places, where they're near main lines and almost never get load shedding, but something happened. Uh, just as I was about to go live. Hmm. <laughs> but I used my mobile, I overcame that 5G. So, uh, yeah, so I've seen that, and I've seen the, the good and great nature of South Africans, their wondrous generosity. I should tell you here, my viewers know this, that I'm here for 30 days. I only pay for two nights accommodation. South Africans have hosted me in their homes, something I'm not comfortable with, not because I don't like South Africans, but I don't like staying in someone's home because I feel like I'm putting them out. But they've hosted me in their homes. Others have paid for my accommodation, and others who have accommodation or they have a family member, they've offered me something for free. Um, so... Um, the generosity has been amazing, um, and it's just it's, it's overwhelming. So 
I want to thank Dr. Hammond for this opportunity to come here tonight and also for being a guest. Uh, some other folks, uh, Des, Jack, and the crowd have also been on my program. Thank you for that. And uh, I, I wish you all the very best, and, and hopefully I'll get back here, and, and hopefully I'm welcome again. Um, as long as Dr. Hammond doesn't see my profanity-laced broadcast on Ronaldo's program, then I think I'll be okay. <laughs> after that, I might not be in as good graces after you saw I was a naughty, naughty boy. But anyway, and I was. I, I won't apologize for it, though. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so thank you all so much, and, and I hope that this was informative and helpful in some way. I will hang around afterwards, uh, mostly because I don't have a ride, but I'll hang around afterwards and answer any questions you might have. Anyway, thank you, and God bless.